Reality, the podcast. Hello, Pod Tribe. I'm your host, Bobby Joe, and you're listening to Refined Reality. Now, today I'm sitting with Tracy DeCane, also known as Miss Money Queen. Uh, Tracy is a financial blogger. Uh, she also posts a lot on self care and um, soul work and money manifestation. So Tracy, you're referred to often as Miss Money Queen. Can you enlighten us? I'm referred to as Miss Money Queen. I was dubbed that title, actually, um, by my best friend, Ariane. And it all correlates to my past experience, especially when it comes to my financial experience in the workforce. I worked at several different financial institutions in Ontario, and uh, it kind of fell on my lap, per se. It wasn't my initial plan for myself when I thought of beginning my career, but I think it was a really good mistake that ended up happening. I always believe that the universe has a certain way of getting you to go through these scenarios uh, for you to learn from them. And I definitely learned quite a bit during my financial career, and it's something I really love doing, and I never thought that I would love it going in. Um, I went to college after my mishappened um, attempt of going to university to follow a uh, art program, finance program. And then I ended up coming back home and I was like, what am I going to do with myself? I need to be able to sustain myself. Uh, I was not in the position where I can go back home and depend on my parents to support me. So I had to find a way to do that myself. and. I started looking online, seeing possible courses that would be something that would get me a job right away when I get out after graduation. And the reason why I, I chose going to college and I chose going local uh, was because of my, um, my financial capabilities. I wasn't able to go out and spend uh, you know, $60,000 on a university degree like I initially planned because it's, it just wasn't in my cards. Uh, I didn't have the financial support from family um, to do so. And uh, OSAP at the time was very limited. I was only uh, able to get around $10,000 at the time per year. So I decided to go to college and I decided to um, choose the course of uh, administration. And I was working three jobs. Yeah, it was three jobs. I was working at the college itself as a technician because it was a course where a lot of the campuses were remote, so that we had campuses in Hearst, Sudbury, Timmins, um, all the way down to Huntsville. So a lot of the classes were through video conference, and at the time, the video conferencing system was huge. And the technician had asked me if I was interested in getting a job to kind of support him in managing the classes, because there were some classes in the afternoon, some at night, and I said, sure, why not? I mean, if it's going to pay me to be there, and I'm going to be there anyway to study, might as well do it. I didn't have any kids at the time, so I spent a lot of my time at school uh, working. And then I had gotten a few jobs in town um, to help myself. But that all came into play when I decided to do this. So, because um, you really were able to take nothing, you know, or almost next to nothing and, and make 
a very comfortable nest egg for yourself and very profitable. And I was wondering if you can share your top tips to just start saving. Yeah, for sure. My top tip first off starts with a good solid budget. And I'm talking about like setting up a spreadsheet. I know people think, oh my God, that's so boring. Tracy, why do I need to spend time doing this? And rather than think about all the negatives about doing this, just actually sit down and do it. It will take you about half an hour to an hour to set everything up. But that gives you an overview of your financial picture at the current moment. And when you have that in hand, then you have an idea of what can you do, what can't you do, what do you need to do to get to the next step. So for me, when I was 18, I, I started school. I knew I had a limited amount of funds. I knew I needed to get multiple jobs to be able to afford it. So starting with a plan, number one. Second, second tip is trying to eliminate any kind of expenses that are not necessary. So by that, I mean reducing your variable expenses, which means maybe not going out every day and grabbing yourself a lunch takeout. Make yourself a sandwich instead. I mean, these are all tips you usually hear from an advisor when you go in a, in a financial setting, but it's true. Uh, those things do add up after a while. And the money that you do end up saving, you can put aside for a rainy day. Uh, number three is thinking about your future. And in that sense, I only got a grasp of that when I started in my financial career. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the advisors at the time that was coming on to retirement, she looked at me and she says, Tracy, do you have an RSP? And I said, at the time, I had no idea what an RSP was. I was 19. I just started my job at the bank had no idea what that meant. And she says, Tracy, you need to look at getting yourself an RSP. And I said, what is that? And she says, it's a registered retirement savings plan. And I said, why do I need that? I'm 19. I'm not going to retire until I'm 65 plus. Like this is not something I need to worry about right now. But in hindsight, it is because the sooner you start saving up for retirement, the easier it's going to get when you get down the road. It could be as little as 25 bucks a month. And if you spread that out in a 30-day period, it's not a lot of money. I mean, we end up spending, I just seen on social media, someone was complaining about spending almost $70 to go watch a movie and eat popcorn. Saving for your golden years. And what, what are your thoughts on funeral services? Like personally me, um, I already have my plot and everything picked out. I did that in my early 20s uh, with other family members to try and cut costs. Because I figured, you know, the only thing that's for certain is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to live and then eventually I'm going to die just like <laughs> everyone else. <laughs> so true. Yeah, definitely. Um, not something a lot, of, a lot of people think about. And it happens a lot. I mean, those are certainly things that come across my desk quite often. Um, funeral expenses is not something people want to be burdened with, especially when you lose a loved one. Uh, it's not a time to be kind of figuring out where you're going to get that money to pay. Because it's quite expensive. Like you, Bobby Joe, have pre-purchased uh, plots and uh, to reduce the burdens on their family. But you know, at the end of the day, the government, our government, only gives us about twenty-five hundred dollars uh, after someone passes away, and that twenty-five hundred doesn't come. It doesn't spread out a lot, and you don't get it right away. So having something to rely on, it, so you don't need to do that, is is very important. You know, I see so many people come in trying to do, trying to make financial decisions when they've just lost their husband, their mother, their father, their brother, and they're not in the mental capacity 
to make those decisions. So any kind of piece of advice I'd give is take the time you need. There's no rush. Obviously, there's the immediate needs that need to be met. But as far as like closing the bank account or doing other things that people think need to be done right away, no, those things can be done when you're ready. You don't need to be pushed at doing that. And everyone takes death at a different pace. So a lot of understanding and respect for people going through those situations is crucial and important and having some empathy as well. That's the thing too. Like I feel like finances are hard enough when it comes to uh, learning what you want. But when you're like, you become a family unit, you know, and you get married there, there becomes so much more conversations that are necessary. And I, like, I know a lot of my friends and like, you look at statistics and like one of the high reasons for divorce rates is people not agreeing um, over spending, over money in your personal life, in your opinion, like how do you go about having those important conversations? Like do you and your partner always see eye to eye? How do you start sitting down and having those important conversations? That's an interesting question, Bobby Joe. It's something that can be taken into uh, different uh, perspectives. For me, uh, with my spouse, uh, we have an agreement. I'm the one that mostly takes care of the finances, obviously. I'm dubbed Miss Money Queen. <laughs> but in a lot of situations, we have couples that keep their finances separate. And I find people's decisions and opinions on that are based on past experiences. For example, if you have someone that's just recently been divorced or separated and they're they're scorned, they're they're unhappy and they don't they have a hard time trusting. And it's a valid feeling and emotion to have. And I always relay how we look at money, how we deal with money on a emotional level, because let's face it, our emotions do trigger and do dominate how we deal with our finances. So if you're in a position where you're angry and you don't trust anyone, well, you're obviously not going to be putting, pulling your money together and sharing that until you feel like you can trust them, you can respect them and you can do that. And sometimes that's not even the case. They're both in agreement where, you know what, I'd rather do our finances separately. And that's fine too. That's great. I mean, it depends on what works for the couple and being open, being honest and having those hard discussions are absolutely necessary when you're in a relationship hiding things like going out and buying things and not sharing it with your spouses, those things can end up in a lot of turmoil. And from experience and from what I've seen, it never ends up working out hiding those kind of things because it all comes out in the wash because nowadays everyone uses their debit cards. It's not on a cash system anymore. So it's very important to keep both people on the same page. The number one reason couples get into an argument, just kind of step back and take some time, cool off, and then come back to the table. Because finances is something that people get divorced over, over and over and over again. Because number one, people are not being honest with one another on what they're spending. And that also relays onto different facets of their life. So it's not just about the finance itself. So I try to look at it as not just that one aspect. Mm. So um, with learning to be more financially accountable, in your opinion, what's the best way to start approaching for um, saving for big purchases like cars, house, and even education. Yeah, that's um, that's a good one. For example, if you're you're going to look to purchase a car, a lot of people now tend to purchase it right away, finance it through the dealership, and away they go. But from my experience, that zero percent finance is never zero percent. It's always tagged on at the end of the total purchase price. 
So you want to know what the APR fee is and that that's the total finance fee after you've borrowed the whole money. So you want to make sure that you can afford those payments because a lot of people, I did a lot of finance for, for car lending um, where I worked before and I would have to do a whole overview. Whereas if you were to go at a dealership, they just ask you for your pay stubs and not even so like sometimes they just ask you your income and then you get auto approved. So doing it that way they don't really have an outlook or understanding of the couple's financial situation so can they really afford that car Eh, sometimes yeah sometimes no but people need to be aware of their affordability for those payments because i find too many times that they're they're going in and they're like well i can afford two hundred dollars a month but then that extends the whole amortization of the entire loan to 10 years you're Mm -hmm. going to be paid over four or five times within that time. And by the time the 10 years or nine years is up, is that car even going to be still roadworthy and you're going to have a loan at the end of the, the, the day? So it's all about what can you afford and what sacrifices can you make if you do want to per- make that big ticket purchase item. And now more than ever, we're not in a position where we can go out and give them $50,000 for a vehicle. And things are a lot more right. expensive than they were in the past. For sure. Like you see that, like I remember being out of school and I didn't go to university because I was like, I don't know if spending $60,000 on something, you know, that I don't know if I want to do because I don't have enough life experience yet. If that's, you know, responsible or feasible, just because everyone seemed to be doing it at the time. Right. And, and I see now a lot of my friends there, they have like this sort of nonchalance, you know, of well, if I can't make the payments, the bank will just take it back or you just go bankrupt and you start over again. Um, can you address like those common misconceptions and the stigma and how bankruptcy can actually affect you? Yeah, those kind of comments shouldn't be taken lightly, especially when it revolves around consumer proposal and bankruptcy because, yeah, some people say, oh, I'll just file for bankruptcy and I'll be fine. But not really. That stays on your credit report. And for you, maybe okay, but seven years down the road, yeah, it's going to have enough time not to affect you anymore, but it's still there. And financial institutions can still take that behavior in consideration because when they go and look at approving a loan, a mortgage, any kind of financial commitment, credit score is not the only thing they look at when they look at approving you. It's the whole picture because you can't just base someone's willingness to pay back that debt on credit alone. I mean, attitude and and their willingness to pay. Because if I hear someone that's in my office say, oh, I've been bankrupt five times, you know, I don't care about that. That's an inkling to me that says, you know what, he's not a client or a person that's going to be paying us back. So do I really want to put my neck out and lend this money to this individual? The, The willingness to pay back and you as a person, and that comes into account, not just credit rating. It's also income. It's also the, um, affordability that comes into play. So there's multiple facets that come in when when they're looking at an application. So trying to think that, oh, I'm going to go bankrupt. It's going to be fine at the end of the day. You know, if it happens where it's because it's out of your control and there's very, like there's hardships that has happened that have put you in that position where you have to do that, that's okay. You know, especially now more than ever with the pandemic, people losing their jobs left, right and center and not being able to afford paying themselves and even afford to lodge themselves and feed themselves and not only them, but their family, their, their children, their people that depend on them. So it's very important to kind of keep that in perspective as well. 
not to only look at it as like a way out of venue to kind of just get out and keep doing the same thing over and over again. You don't want it to become a habit, but to use it for the purpose it's intended for because we're not perfect. Things happen. Yes, that's completely understandable. And it's not to say that if you went bankrupt, you'll never be able to borrow or, or do anything come the future either. It's just how you handle it. So what can an individual do to minimize their risk tolerance and increase their credit scores? Like, What's the good mindset and the good place to start for people who may be struggling with that? Um, getting a grasp of what they have coming out on the month-to-month basis. So it comes down to, back again, doing the budget and seeing exactly what comes out of their bank account, what they can eliminate, because that in itself will help them give an overlook and always, always make sure to pay your bills on time, okay? Even as far as paying your cell phone bill, anything, even internet, all those bills that that come on a month-to-month basis, make sure you're up to date with those and try to reduce the amount of credit you owe. So for example, if you have a $5,000 credit card and it's always maxed out, well, try to eliminate the highest interest first. So if you have a credit card, you have a car payment, you have a line of credit, and you want to focus on reducing one of them, focus on the credit card. That's 19.99% interest. So you want to make sure you you get a good chunk of that paid off first. And that helps with your credit as well. And it it showcases your willingness to pay back your debt. Because now we have a lot more resources than we did. Like I remember in my parents' day, like I remember my mom um, when I was little sitting back, sitting me down and sitting my dad down and then like going over what we're allowed to spend, you know, because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I wanted all this stuff and I didn't really have an idea of where it came from mm-hmm. and what life energy my parents needed to put in to get money <laughs> to begin with and learning the value of a dollar. And now you see like there's automatic withdrawals and chips and all these services that can, uh, you know, you put, you link all your accounts up and it auto budgets for you. What's your opinion on that? I particularly really like this option. I have that option where I'm banking right now where it kind of tallies all of your monthly expenses and it puts it in a spreadsheet and it gives you an overlook of where you're spending because I'm a visual learner. So I think it has more of an impact for me if I see over the month, oh my God, I spent X amount of dollars on takeout or whatever. So it gives you an idea of where you need to, to, to trim and where you need to put it elsewhere. I really like those services. Mint actually is one of the services that I that I personally use. And like you said, it kind of categorizes everything for you and it automatically tracks um, where you save, where you spend. Uh, and it gives you, a, you could even get automatic notifications on your, your cell phone when you're overspending. So the ease of how we do budgeting now should make you want to do it. It's not like in the old days where you do a spreadsheet where I'm still like that. I like the the spreadsheets and being able to manage it that way, but I also combine it with the technology they have out there right now. Nice. And just for our listeners, uh, just so they're aware, Mint is, we are not sponsored (laughs) by any of the services. So I know like a lot with people get overwhelmed, like with insurances and stuff like that. And can you explain deductibles and premiums and um, just how to get started for people who might not know? Uh, For insurances, yeah. Whether you're looking for auto insurance, uh, life insurance, any sort of insurance, uh, which is another important aspect when you look at securing your finances, is to be aware of the total premium. Most insurance, they'll they'll charge you the annual premium and then you can 
have it on a month-to-month basis. There is deductibles. So for example, for a car, they start out like at 250 or $500 or $1,000 deductible, meaning that if you were to get into a situation where you need to make a claim, you have to pay that up front for them to process the claim. So for me, for example, about three years ago, uh, the boat we purchased, uh, we purchased brand new and then we had a huge snowstorm over the winter period and where we were storing it, it completely collapsed and my boat was completely smushed to the ground where it was no longer usable. So I started the claim process and I had to pay the deductible, I believe it was 500 and uh, did the, the whole claim online, it was very easy. I really liked the, the whole process and it was quite fast. Uh, there was an adjuster that was supposed to come in and come and see it, but didn't end up happening. And they, they, paid out, they paid out the value. So that's another thing to take in consideration when you're in a claim process. You're not necessarily going to get the amount of the value of the vehicle that is insured. So be aware of that because I've had multiple people come into situations like this where they get into an accident and the insurance provider doesn't always provide the amount necessary to go out and buy a brand new car. So be mindful of that. It's not always the case where that, that, that happens. And Is that where shopping around would, uh, would be helpful? Yeah, definitely. Shopping around is, uh, is a great um, tool to kind of have an outlook and see and find an advisor that can give you the best advice because we're so focused on the interest rate, the service, the product that we forget the advice piece. Because if you're not well-versed in this kind of industry, it all looks like uh, jargon, right? So you want to make sure you have someone in front of you that knows what they're doing and that can give you the best advice possible. I think for me is probably one of the, my main, my main things I look for when I try to find a service provider, whether it's financial insurance, what have you. You know, toys are expensive. Having multiple homes, that's all very expensive. And I know um, my husband and I, we bought our first home two years ago and there was just so many unforeseen things that happened. And uh, do you have any advice for, you know, young couples or first-time homeowners? Yeah, I do. When I was working in uh, industry, first-time home buyers were my favorite. To walk them step-by-step throughout the whole process of purchasing their home um, was one of my most fulfilling things that I could do. And the reason being... I'm going to just take you a little back. When I bought my first house, it was 19 and I was really young. So I remember going in and seeing the advisor and we sat across the desk and he looked at us and he says, you guys really want to buy a house? He legitimately looked at me and said, do you want to buy a house? Aren't you a little young for this? And I said, no, I, I really want to buy this house. Can you just go through the application and get us started? So I think in my mind, I felt so, I was outraged because he made that assumption on me based on my age and not my seriousness of me wanting to be a homeowner. So when I got into finance, I made sure to tell myself that I'd never treat a person sitting across from me that way ever, regardless of age, race, nationality, anything like that. That doesn't matter. They're people. So just listen to them and try to help them the best way you can. So for me, first-time homebuyers have a little place in my heart because of what I had been through. So I was always very diligent on going step-by-step the whole process. So I would tell them flat out all the expenses that are going to come into play, write it down, show it to them, show them the rates, the amortization, the different terms, open, fixed, closed terms as far as the mortgage rates goes, and explain to them um, the different methods of how it's going to be uh, registered, if it's going to be uh, through a lawyer, if it's going to be through the bank, because depending on the route you go, 
more so for first-time home buyers, it's always done legally through a lawyer. But if you're going to be refinancing, then there's different aspects and it's a little bit cheaper. But always be in contact with them too. So I would always touch base with them and say, oh, what's the next step? Or if they have any questions at all or any recommendations at all, they can call me during business hours and I'd be more than happy to help them. So I, I, I've managed to really make a connection with first-time home buyers, And a lot of my referrals were because of the service I provided. And the just me taking the extra time and going the extra mile for them to ease their, their anxiety because it's not... It's not fun going through buying a first-time home, especially if you're in, in competition and you're making offers and you have to find insurance, you have to find this. You, there's unforeseen expenses that come into play. For example, if you buy a house that has an oil tank, well, did the previous owner fill it? If he did, then that comes to the buyer's expense at closing. So things that they never even thought of that um, I'd ask the questions and, I'd, and with those questions would help me determine, okay, what, what do they need to do? What do they need to know? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too. There's always so many conditions. And like when we bought our first home, for example, my husband, I had more knowledge on like structural needs. I don't want to get that house because this type of roof is going to be more expensive. And then this type of well versus this is going to be more expensive. And, and just like general upkeep. But what I failed to realize was, um, for example, we, he signed the fixed mortgage and I didn't realize like, we can't move, we can't rent it, we can't sell, there's restrictions. And because we were first time like homeowners, we had to wait for five years and, and, and stuff like that. And it's like, I wish I would have realized all these little things because it really limits to what the next five years of our life is gonna be. Yeah, that's, that's so true, Bobby Joe. Um, as far as your, your comment on like fixed terms, yes. Uh, when you do buy a house and you do agree on a fixed term mortgage, that rate is set for five years. So if you were to break that, there'd be a penalty. Uh, you can still move from your financial institution. The only thing you need to be aware of is the hefty penalty, depending on, usually it's three months worth of interest or the remaining uh, term. So it's always a good thing to go and ask your advisor, okay, look, we're looking to sell or we're looking to move our mortgage. So that's where it comes into play. Shopping around, like a, a 0.5% discount on a rate is that really worth your time your effort and the penalty to move from your financial institution to another probably not and that's another thing that when i had people come in and see me and say look tracy i really want to deal with you i want to move my mortgage from x bank to you then i'd say look give me your information your your, your mortgage details information i'm going to do play with a few numbers and give you an idea of if it's worth it or not and that's a thing where I was, I, it was flexible. So they didn't necessarily look at that as a downside where I wouldn't make the sale. I'd be more interested in doing what was best for the client because I knew eventually they'd come over and see me, but I didn't want to do it in a way where it would cost them thousands of dollars in penalties for that. Some people really value having like that flexibility and not being tied down for those people, but they still want to own homes or toys, big expenses. Like what would you recommend? Flexibility depends, right? I mean, if you're going to go in an open mortgage, your interest rate is going to be a lot higher and your payments are going to be a lot higher. So you have to be okay with that. Flexibility comes at a price as well, right? You're going to be paying more. So it's, it, it all comes down to knowing how long you're going to stay at a certain place. So it's very important to figure out why you need it, how long you need it, and what's the use for it. Knowing, okay, I'm buying this house right now 
but is this for the long haul? Like if this is a home that you're going to be owning 10 plus years from now, or is it a flip that you want to just look at investing and then flipping it and selling it? So that really determines the, the terms on the mortgage itself or on the lending itself. So having those open discussions with your advisor is crucial and they need to be made aware. So if you find that they're going quickly over your application, not really going over those details, just say, hey, like, can we just slow this down? I really want to understand this. And if they're, if they're open to taking your business, and I know a lot of them are busy, but they have to answer those questions as well. I mean, they're making those recommendations. You need to understand that. And if you feel like you're not being understood, well, maybe it's time to go and see someone else. Because the terms, the conditions, the, the rates, they're all going to be the same pretty much across the board. It's who's in front of you, who's explaining to you, and giving you that opportunity to learn that. If you're not feeling like you're learning that and you're understanding, it might be time to find someone else that will make you understand that. So don't feel pressured into going ahead with a business deal just for the sake of the rate. Because you see, like, I remember I grew up and my number one teaching from my parents was like, live within your means. That's nice. You can go out and get the best, the best, you know, of the best and the newest of the new, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to own it. Mm -hmm. And what are, what are, what's your opinion on that? Nowadays, it's all about instant gratification, right? I mean, everything is on, on credit everything we own pretty much is on credit. I've always looked at it like what makes you happy? What at the end of the day, what brings you joy and what you need this for. So again, I'll use my example. For me, when we got married and had kids and everything, we kind of hunkered down and really focused on building our family, like buying our first home, then buying our second and buying our third and always putting back our money into our houses and, and, and paying those bills and really hunkering down and not really having much fun. But it was also a time where we had to raise our children and there was other things that were coming into play where we didn't have that opportunity to have fun and or go on a holiday or a shopping spree or buy all the nicest things. Fast forward 10 years down the road where we've made a, there's still quite a bit of expenses, but my husband looked at me, can we get a boat please? And it's been like 10 years, 10 plus years he had been asking me for this. And I said, you know what, at the end of the day, we're going to be using it. It's going to give us a lot of experiences, a lot of fun times with our family. And we went out and bought a boat on credit. To me, I don't see it as a bad thing. Some may, some may say, oh my God, don't go put that on credit. You're going to spend a ton. Well, for me, it's the experience and the face on my kids and my husband. We spend all our time on the boat during the summer and it brings us joy. I, I look at that as an experience, not just owning a piece of equipment like a boat. Like At the end of the day, it's a boat. It's a thing. But what mm -hmm. do I take out of it? It's the experience out of it. If we ended up losing the boat, it's not the end of the world. It's all about perspective and managing that too. You can't just always be so serious, not have fun and, and, and save because sometimes life is so short that you may wake up the next day and, and, and get in an accident. You never know. But at the same time, on the flip side, you always have to, to prepare for the future as well. So it's, it's, it's a balance. It's a balance of your wants versus your needs, but you also have, you have to have fun in between. So try to find a medium in that. So if you knew then what you know now, what would be your number one piece of advice for a, you know, a young couple who they're buying their first house, they're thinking about starting a family and doing things together like that? My number one piece of advice would be take your time because I found I was in a situation where I had to make really quick decisions. And knowing now, telling myself then, 
I would have been telling myself to take that time, not rush into it, because there's always going to be a house. There's always going to be houses for sale. That's not, that's not the issue. Okay. So taking that time and really understanding what you're getting yourself into. And once you know that, then go ahead. But for me, that advice I would give back to myself is take that time and don't feel rushed into it because sometimes I tend to be an action first consequence later kind of person and it can get you into some trouble sometimes. Luckily, I was fortunate where the choices I made in the past really made who I am and what we have now in the current present. So that's the piece of advice I would give a family starting out like a new couple that would be buying is make sure they take the time to really understand what they're getting themselves into and having someone that gives that the proper advice for that as well. So what's your, your opinion? Like sometimes you look around and you see like couples or families in our age group and they have like, you know, so many toys and multiple homes and stuff like that. And some people do, you know, the whole rent to own or they get, um, use toys and fix them up. Uh, essentially, in your opinion, when should you be cheap and when should you not be? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one, actually. Uh, I think when it comes down to it, I don't cheap out on the vehicle I, I drive because for the past five years, I had been commuting quite a bit and my safety was always my main priority. So I always purchased a newer car if something were to happen, it's warranted and it's, it's safer. Whereas some people may be local and not drive a lot so that they can afford to, to, to purchase a used vehicle that they need to fix up on their own and have those expenses. It, it boils down to what you need because every person's situation is different. So it's kind of a hard question to answer. But coming from poverty and not having any money and, and basically having to build things out of nothing. I, I did grow up with an appreciation in fixing things and not just throwing it away. So I'm kind of a mesh of both worlds where some things I do want new, I, I want that just for safety concerns. And some things I'm more lenient on and, and purchasing used um, that we can work on. I mean, for example, we own a farm and my, my in-law, he, he purchases a lot of used farming equipment. And that saves a lot of money because in those situations, the equipment doesn't last long even if it's new or used. So why go out and buy a new piece of equipment where you can buy a used one at a fraction of the cost and maintain it the same way? So again, it falls down to the situation and what you need to use it for. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Like I know personally, my husband and I were always like, okay, what what is the most multi-purpose you know like if we get a, a truck can we use it to plow our yard if we get a you know a side by side or, or this versus a different toy can we use it what's two season three season four season and, and that's normally our deciding factor practicality versus luxury exactly that's another that's another important factor when you come into making those decisions is uh, luxury versus what it's used for right what are your thoughts on um, people who, you know, invest in, they, they sort of um, say, like, I have some friends, they invest in their clothing, or, or they like to, to purchase a lot of luxury items in the hopes of uh, selling it later for, for a profit. What are your thoughts on that? Do you dabble in that sort of thing? 
Uh, not in that particular aspect. No, I'm not one to go out and buy things and resell. I just don't have the want or need or time to do that. And that's just me. I mean, there are quite a few people that do that, that dabble into that and buy and fix it up and then resell it at a profit. Hey, whatever makes you happy. If you enjoy buying those expensive purses and you want to sell, who am I to say? That, that, that's, that's what they like. They like to do it. Hey, if you're having fun and you're making money and you're not going in the hole, then more power to you. Uh, for me, like I, I recently got into art. I do spend quite a bit of money on quality items. So being able to get the best paper or the best um, pencils or charcoal items to make a better uh, final product. If I'm going to sell something to a client, I want to make sure that it's the right, like it's top notch quality product. So I could see the the want for some people to do that, right? Depends on what you're passionate, where it comes down to it. If you like purses or if you like shoes or if you like hats, I mean, I see a lot of people with different collections. Make sure that it comes down to where it doesn't overwhelm your whole financials. You don't want to only be spending on that. You want to make sure that you have a good grasp of what needs to be paid and then whatever extra you have, hey, why not? Go have fun. When it comes down to like proper spending habits, like do you recommend like paying, you know, for example, rent first and then bills? Like what percentage of your income should you designate to, uh, you know, staying alive, mm -hmm. uh, hobbies? Do you have any recommendations? Well, the base recommendation I'm thinking lending wise is 40%. So you shouldn't spend more than 40% of your total monthly income on expenses. So meaning your housing, uh, your main expenses for a living, right? Variable expenses could be in that 60%, but you should not be paying, spending more than 40% of your income. So if someone needs to spend more than that, then maybe they should reassess and that would be considered living out of your means? Exactly. They should reevaluate. So meaning if they have too many toys, too many expenses, four-wheeler, a boat, or multiple items that they have to do monthly payments on, then they need to look at reducing that because based on our, our affordability, that's living beyond your means. And if someone comes to realize, you know, like sometimes life happens and they change their job or something and then they realize, oh no, I'm spending too much. I have all these. Should you just start selling? Like how do you fix that situation? Yeah, that's, that's one route is to start dwindling down your items. And, and if you have a boat and you can't afford it, well, Hey, got to sell it. At the end of the day, there it's items. It's stuff that you can get later on. What's more important to you at that time? If you can't afford to put food on your table for you, your kids or whatever, you got to really reassess what's important at right now at this time because that boat is not going to bring you food on the table. So if you need to sell it, then sell it. That shouldn't even be a question. That's something that should be done automatically is if you can't afford it then do that and if you don't want to part with those items then what do you need to do to make sure that you can afford that is the sacrifice so we'll maybe get a second job or get your spouse to get a second job or there's only two ways about it getting rid of it or finding other means to to, to bring money in to support your your habits what about, um, I know, for example, you're saying, okay, it's, you know, $200 for a vehicle, but over 10 years. And then you, you see a lot of people trading in and then having payments on stuff that they don't necessarily have because they realize, oh, I can't afford that or this no longer fits into my lifestyle. You know, I have three kids. I, I, have, I had a sports car. It was totally unforeseen. I, I got to trade this in, but I'm still paying on my sports car. Now I'm paying on, on my van or my SUV. 
how do you like, should those situations be avoided? How do you rectify those situations? Is that when a financial advisor comes into play? Yeah, definitely when a financial uh, advisor comes into play. I've seen this multiple times where people have outstanding debt on credit cards, line of credits, you know, to pay off those things that you itemized before. And you have a lump sum, I don't know, I'm just going to throw a number out there, $25,000 that's outstanding that from you trying to, to clean up whatever you're trying to get rid of uh, in order for your new life. So a lot of times it falls onto like consolidating the loan. So going to speak to your advisor and say, look, my situation has changed. Can we make a loan or, or, or build like a plan where I can put this all in one and uh, pay it off you know, quickly? So that's where you really have to have that kind of relationship with your advisor and uh, they give you the advice and, and see what they can do. I mean, there are times, unfortunately, where there's nothing they can do because it's, it's to the point where they should have came earlier. Don't wait until it's too late to, to get that kind of help. So what, in your opinion, qualifies as too late? Being too late is after going to see your advisor and getting that consolidation loan and not being approved, that that would be a point where it would be too late. We talked about maintaining lifestyle flexibility, but it'd be nice, I feel, to talk about maintaining financial flexibility in the sense that I know from my own personal experience, we try to save and be as vigilant as possible, but there's there seems to always be something that's breaking or a vet bill that needs to happen or something just when you feel like you're finally starting to get ahead. Unforeseen circumstances happen all the time. And I think we need to be mindful of what we can do to maintain what we're, we're, we're saving for. And it's easier said than done. But uh, for the past two, three years, uh, we were in a financial burden where my husband had lost his job and went into a job that paid uh, significantly less. So we had to make adjustments to our finances um, as to where we were going to allocate things. Really trying to, I had to reduce the amount of payments I was making against the the debt I had uh, and going into paying interest only, even though it was really something I never wanted to do. But unfortunately, I had other things that I needed to pay that, that needed to be paid right away, like uh, means living and hydro and all those other expenses. But in the same sense, I always made sure to keep my uh, retirement savings plans contributions intact and not get those lowered even though we were in that situation we were in so it's all about prioritizing what's important for you your family um, as far as your finances go and it's not always easy I mean I, I say this and some people may not have that opportunity to keep those things afloat if something were to go awry like uh, losing a job but trying the best you can and if you know you're in a situation where like drastically go and seek that advice I mean don't wait until it gets to the point of becoming a bankruptcy or consumer proposal. Be vigilant in your finances and seek the help before it gets to that point. Right. I mean, everyone should be able to live comfortably, have you know the necessities and have like a relatively stress-free financial situation. Um, you know, I like personally for us, um, we, I mean, we're always learning. I always wonder, like, should you have more than one, you know, savings account, like for your retirement? Should it all be pooled? I mean, we try to personally look at saving as a bill that needs to be paid with our other bills. And I feel that we started having that shift 
in our thought process. And it's been a lot easier actually to save. Yeah, definitely. For me, I do the same thing. Like I have multiple savings accounts. You should look at my, my account. There's like 10 or 12. And my husband looks at me like, why do we need all these savings accounts? I, I kind of separate everything. So all of the money is pulled into one account. So all of our income goes into one account. And then I have automatic transfers that happen on every Friday. So a certain amount is allocated for this bill. A certain amount is allocated for savings. A certain amount is allocated for paying the visa bill. Like that way, after everything's been transferred out of the account come Friday or whenever the paycheck comes in, you know what you have in your account that you can use. So it gives Wait, you- Wait, so you, you treat your bills as an automatic withdrawal? Yeah. Sorry, like, really? I never yeah. would have thought to set that up. It's, it makes life a lot easier if you separate it by bank account. And I have the option where opening up a savings account is free. And as long as you do the transfers online, there's no fees. So in my mind, it, it separates everything and it makes it quite easier than just working off of one account for paying everything. I mean, you can pay the bill off of that account, but put the money aside in a separate account. So for example, my mortgage payment for the house, I set aside, I work on a week to week basis. So I set aside every Friday, a portion of the mortgage payment in a separate account and come time at the end of the month. Well, the whole mortgage payments right there. And it's easy peasy. It's something that could be done very easily. It just takes a little bit of planning um, to get it all, all set up. But once it's all in play, you don't really need to worry about it. Do you have a recommendation for like, I know they say like, you know, uh, biweekly and monthly and all that. Is it, do you feel like it just comes down to um, how your job pays you in personal preference? Or is there actually a one that benefits over the other? I always tell people to go based on their pay schedule because it's a lot easier than putting aside money when you don't have a pay coming in. Like, whereas me and my husband, he's semi-monthly, he's paid semi-monthly, I'm paid bi-weekly. So our pays don't always align, but most of them come weekly because of the way it's set up. So that's why I always base it on weekly for us versus some people may be paid monthly. Some people may be paid weekly, bi-weekly, semi-monthly. So it all depends on that. I mean, when you're setting up your, your bill payments, your mortgages and all that, Make sure to take that into account um, when you're when you're getting that done. And if if it doesn't fall into that time, that that's where me setting up multiple accounts and putting that money aside comes into play as well. It alleviates any unforeseen times where you may not have that money set aside. So I always make an importance of having an actual savings account meant for savings. So they typically mm -hmm. say you should have at least you know a month's worth of salary saved up for unforeseen circumstances and I firmly believe that. I mean, we definitely do need some sort of liquidity in our account if god forbid you did less hours or you're sh you're not paid as much or um you were sick and you couldn't go into work and and that's another thing a lot of people don't take into account is if you're sick or if you're off for a certain amount of time like a short-term leave um most employers don't pay you your 100% salary. Uh, they only pay you that for a short amount of time. And then if you stay on longer, it's most of the times around 60% of your, of your salary that you're paid. So a lot of things to take in consideration. Um, and that should be something that people prioritize is putting that savings aside. And if people feel like having it just there in a bank account, that's easily accessible, then maybe consider opening up a tax-free savings account. I, I don't know if that's available in all countries, but here in Ontario, that's a, 
that's a saving venue where people can put that money in and then the money that they withdraw, they don't pay taxes on. So, and it's not something that's accessible right away. Usually it takes around 24 to 48 hours to get that money put in your bank account. So earlier you spoke about how um, 40% of your income should go to, you know, your cost of living, like your mortgage, whatnot. And then 60% should be um, your variable spending, going out, et cetera, whatnot. But what percent should you be putting towards your saving on a monthly basis to be treating it like a bill? I usually put, I try to keep, like I said, a month's worth of salary saved up on any given day, like um, keep it at that rate. And for me, I transfer uh, about $150 a week into savings. And I continuously build on that. So if I do end up needing to use it, then you have that in place, right? And that's mm-hmm. something that I've recently restarted because for the past two, three years, it's been a really rough patch where I couldn't put money aside, really. I mean, if I did, it was only 25, 50 bucks a week, if that. But just keep in mind that even if it's not the full amount that you're intending to do, just that little amount, just to keep you in that habit. Because a lot of people say it takes 21 days to, to form a habit, a good habit. So if you have that always in play, even if you're going through a rough patch, and you still need that money, that's fine. But it's just to set you up with that habit of putting that money aside for you. You got People need to start treating themselves as a bill. They want to pay themselves first, not pay everyone else, right? Mm, I like that. I've never heard that before. What a good outlook. Mm-hmm. Well, that was refined and real. Many thanks to you, our listeners, for staying with us until the very end. For more about us and what we do, check us out on our Facebook page, Refined Reality, the podcast. And a huge shout out to Architect for building our music. Like what you hear? Check out his info in our description. Until next time, get some R&R. Stay curious. This is Bobby Joe signing off.